0: to Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 here in just a moment. But for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, haven't we? Which is an odd place to go at Christmas time, right? Because Revelation is supposed to be the end of things, which gave us a very different view of Christmas, especially in last week's test, text in Matthew chapter 12. And um, I wasn't expecting the, the, the feedback that I got. Many of you said, man, that was, that was an excellent understanding of, of, of that passage. And I have to tell you, um, I had not, in, in studying and preparing, I, I've looked at that passage many times, but in preparing for that uh, last week, man, I learned so many things about, about that passage and what it, what it shows us. And, and I, I was just thankful for how God spoke to us through that. Um, and uh, But this, this morning, we're going to move back from Revelation to a more traditional uh, Christmas passion, passage. And um, what we've seen is that he's the great high priest so far in Revelation. And he has all authority, and he stands among the church, and he holds all things in his hand. And Revelation also gave us this view that he's the only one that the church should cling to, right? And that we should never look at our church as being something that is ours. It is his church. And if he is not standing in the middle of it, if we have settled for him to be on the outside looking in, knocking, asking to come in, we have messed things up. And when we, when we settle for ministering that way, it's not ministry at all. It's just social hour. It's just, it's just religious piety and social hour. And God is not in the midst of his church. That is a dangerous thing. We also saw in Revelation that he's presented as this great promised Messiah who all the forces of Satan and hell have eternally tried to destroy, but they can never rise to defeat and they never will rise to defeat. And church, we need to rest upon that promise that our savior, our king, whether he's a baby in a manger or he's the conquering king that we saw in the book of Revelation, He is the one that we base our faith on. He's the one that we base our hope on. As the old song says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And this is the picture of the Savior that we need to keep before us as we consider the awesome message of this season. See, not only do we celebrate the baby in the manger, that infant holy and and lowly, but we also glorify this conquering Messiah. Who sits enthroned above everything and with all power and wisdom and majesty and might. He is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords and he is the conquering warrior. See scripture covers Jesus from every angle. And that's why scripture is so important and is so beautiful. And I left my water over here so bear with me for just a second. Scripture covers Jesus from just about every angle. And like I said, over the last couple weeks, Revelation gave us this unveiled view of Jesus, this no holds barred, uh, hashtag no filter Jesus. Like we saw him in glory, right? We saw him as we peeked behind the veil. This is our king. This is who we worship. And this week and next Sunday, we're going to look at the more traditional accounts of the birth of Christ in the Gospels. And each account gives us different views of Christ. As a matter of fact, as you look through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, you see that you get different views of Jesus and different, they focus on different aspects of his nature, actually, as you look through Scripture. Uh, in the book of Mark, we see Mark is, he, he presents Jesus as this suffering servant. He's known as the Son of Man. And in Isaiah 53, Jesus was said that he will come as the Son of Man and he will be a servant that suffers so that we can have eternal life. And that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, but that he humbled himself to do the will of his father and to reveal the amazing love and grace of God. In Luke, he's presented even more so as the Son of Man, which is this messianic title of the prophecy from the prophecy of Daniel, and he's also known as the Son of David in the book of Luke. And Luke focuses on Jesus' humanity and beautifully details the announcements of his incarnation and his birth in Luke chapter one and in verse number two and, in, and chapter two. Luke is the only gospel, though, that gives us a glimpse into Jesus' childhood years as well. And Luke is the only place that we see Jesus before uh, he's about 30 years old and begins his ministry. We see that scene uh, where he's about 12 years old and Mary thinks for the first time Jesus has done something wrong and he's not with them as they're leaving Jerusalem to go back home. And Mary goes to kind of chide Jesus and say, Jesus, we were looking all over for you. And he said, didn't, why'd you look for so long? Didn't you know I'd be in God's house doing my father's business and kind of You know, puts mom in her place and I'm like thinking, man, I wish I could do that. But I never was able to do that, right? Um, So the book of Luke shows the humanity of Jesus, but the book of John represents Jesus as the son of God, as the second person in the Trinity, the one that's co-equal and co-eternal with God, the Father, And we see the genealogy records in John are really short because all he gets is the spiritual genealogy that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we see his spiritual genealogy in the book of John. And the book of John shows us that he gives great revelation of the kingdom that is to come. And what's interesting is God chooses John, the writer of the gospel of John, to also be the one who writes the book of Revelation to see that king that, king that was to come fulfilled. But as we look at the book of Matthew, we see Matthew really focuses on the kingly authority of Jesus it, re- it represents Jesus as the promised Messiah and is the coming king. And this is the one that more closely relates what we've been looking at in the book of Revelation as well, because Jesus is presented in authority and power and with royalty in the book of Revelation. So today we're gonna take this piece of yarn, if you will, and take it from and tie it to the book of Revelation and bring it all the way back to the very beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew and see this king and his birthplace. And beginning in verse number two number 1 of chapter 2 it says after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea in the days of king herod wise men from the east arrived in jerusalem saying where is he who has been born the king of the jews for we saw his star at its rising and we have come to worship him and when king herod heard this he was deeply disturbed and all of jerusalem with him so he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and they asked them where the messiah would be born And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully and diligently for the child. Because when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. And we know from last week, Herod didn't want to go and worship him. What did he want to do? He wanted to kill him. And after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising, it led them until it came and it stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would speak today. Lord, I am just a weak vessel. And I ask this morning that you would be seen loud and clear. That you would be seen clearly. Lord Jesus, we have been looking at you from the point of what it will be when you come at that second advent. Lord Jesus, as we look this morning and we turn our attention to your first advent, we see that you are still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Just as a baby laying in a manger could still be a king, had no crown on his head, The only crown you wore when you were here on earth was a crown of thorns. But Lord, you are crowned with royalty and with light and with power and with majesty. And Lord, we come this morning to you like these wise men. We lay at your feet our offerings of who we are, broken as we are, what we have, we want to give unto you. And so I pray this morning that you would speak to us and that you would show us the king, not that we want, but the king that we need. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. The king that we want, not the king that we, or the king that we need, not the king that we want. That's pretty much the title uh, of the message and this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, what we see here, it's already beginning to feel a little bit more like Christmas with this passage, right? Revelation doesn't give you that Christmasy feel, right? Because there's red dragons and swords. In Matthew, there's no red dragons. There's no swords flying out of people's mouths. It's just the beautiful Christmas star, the good old wise men traveling from afar, and crazy old genocidal King Herod, right? That's the Christmas story that we're familiar with. And then we also have Jesus, that long-awaited king and the prophets had foretold for centuries, the one who would establish peace, the one who would establish his kingdom and perfect justice, and whose reign would know no end. See, we've had the benefit of the past several weeks of seeing the rest of the story as we've looked at the book of Revelation. We've been able to, like I said, peek behind that veil and see just what the newborn king really looks like and what he is capable of. But you see, the magi, the wise men, when they came from the east, they didn't have that picture of Jesus. All they had to go on was the Old Testament prophecies. And they began to think and they began to put things together and realize that there was about to be born the king of the Jews. The one who was the Messiah that was foretold by the ancients of the past. And they wanted to give, they wanted to come and they wanted to give respect and honor to the king. But they didn't really have the detailed description that we have in the book of Revelation. We've had a, a, a really, uh, just kind of a, a privileged view to be able to see the rest of the story. And now we're going back to see the beginning of it. Sure, they had some prophecies. But those prophecies had always been tempered by their own personal expectations and their own personal ideas of what a king should actually do and what it should look like. And they also had a bunch of kings that they were under in ancient times that kind of tempered their view of what a king should look like as well. And they were introduced, and what's interesting in this passage is we're introduced to an earthly king and King Herod. And man, he couldn't be any different than Jesus the king, could he? One who is hell-bent on holding on to his crown at all costs. Being willing to kill a child. And being willing to wipe out an entire generation of Jewish young men. Just so he could hold on to his temporal crown. So this is the idea of what a king does. This is what people knew kings to do at that time. And then the magi say, we've come to worship the one that is born the king of the Jews. And so with the proclamation of the wise men in our text, when they come and they say, where is he that is born, the king of the Jews? All the prophecies of the coming Messiah were brought to mind in the nation of Israel. And from the first declaration of a coming deliverer to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And understand, this is something that they had been looking forward to since the very beginning of sin. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus was necessary. This Messiah was now necessary. This wasn't something that God just conjured up so that we could have a celebration every year. This is something that we desperately needed, and we there was no other way for man to be redeemed according to God's justice. And so he sent his son. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Israel didn't receive the king that they were looking for. They received the king that they needed. See, when everybody looks for a king, they look for something different. We see that. We don't have kings and queens in the United States, but we have presidents and senators and and lawmakers and stuff, right? And everybody has different ideas of what their leaders should be and what they should do and what they should look like. Everybody had their idea of what the Messiah would look like too. Even though the word was clear about it, they still had their ideas of how he would do it. And Jesus blew away everybody's expectations. See... In many ways, Israel's reaction to Christ in human form um, is mimicked by the reaction that the world has to Jesus today. Many people celebrated Jesus when he was feeding the 5,000 and doing the things that they said, now this is what a king should do. But then the next day when Jesus says, no, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And they're saying, hold on for a second, that's not the Messiah I had in my mind. The Messiah I had in my mind was going to set everything right and destroy Rome and do all of these things that are good for me. And now you're telling me to take up my cross, a Roman symbol of execution and persecution, and follow you? That's not the king that I was waiting for. That's not the Messiah that I was hoping for. You must just be another fake. See, and even as his church, we have to own the fact that we've developed expectations of our king, of Jesus That just don't always line up with who King Jesus actually is. And this is honestly the age old struggle of humanity with Christ. We all wrestle with our own ideas and our own expectations of Jesus, don't we? Good way to know this is how many times have you just felt like Jesus just kind of didn't answer the prayer the way he should have? We all kind of want to suggest it. And God God has nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with us suggesting to God what we would like to see happen. But we always must back it up with what the words of Christ that he prayed as well. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, Lord. See, we all wrestle with our own ideas of the king and the kind of king that we think Jesus should be. But you see, our true worship and true faith requires following and serving the king that he is. The king that we need him to be. So today the message is presented in this form of a question. What kind of king have we been looking for? What kind of king are we really looking to follow? So we're going to look at the kind of king that Israel was looking for. And then we're going to look at the kind of king that he actually is. So what kind of king was Israel looking for? What were they waiting for in their Messiah? The first thing that we see that they were waiting for in their Messiah is they looked for one who would restore the kingdom of David to its glorious splendor of old. I guess you could say... They were looking for Jesus to come back and bring back the glory days, right? Samuel had prophesied and and, and they had this idea, not based on traditions, but they had this idea based upon scripture because the Bible said that he would restore David's throne through this Messiah. See, Samuel had prophesied as well that the kingdom would be established forever in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said this, he said, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So they had this idea that when the Messiah shows up, David's throne will be the main throne on earth. There won't be any more like oppression. There won't be any more things that would, that, would, uh, that would stand in the way of the Jewish people being the golden people of God. Isaiah said that a rod would come from the root or the stem of Jesse, and that was David's father, and that that root would rule Israel with righteousness, and that he would slay the wicked in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah also said that a son would be given, and the government would be on his shoulder in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And it's a beautiful passage. I want to read it to you. It says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and his government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So we get this idea that the Messiah will be this conquering king that basically is everything that we could ever want wrapped up in one person. And, church, I want to present to you that Jesus is everything that we could ever need wrapped up in human flesh. He's God himself. But sometimes he's not everything that we want. And that's when we struggle. See, everyone in Israel memorized these verses. They were trained to look for a king to rise up to bring their people, the physical nation of Israel, back to a place of prominence. And for a people that had been ostracized and for a people that had been oppressed for centuries by different empires, this was something they constantly looked for. They constantly wanted that. They wanted a king who would establish Israel as top dog. Among the world powers. They may have even walked around with make Israel great hats again or something like that. I don't know. But they wanted somebody that was going to make Israel number one. They looked as well, number two, for one who would overthrow and defeat the Roman occupation and oppressors. Because their current oppressors. They'd had Egypt as an oppressor, they'd had Babylon as an oppressor, they'd had Persia as oppressor, they'd had all the people in Cana that were constantly warring against them, but their current oppressors were the Roman government. And at the time of Christ's birth, Israel was under deep oppression. Caesar and Augustus and King Herod and the governors of the land were really just pillaging through the money, pillaging through the holy city. They were just taking over everything and they were crying out in pain. And Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8 that God would preserve his people and protect them from imprisonment. And they would bring them out of oppression to a place of power and freedom. And like I said, Israel has this long history of imprisonment. They have this long history of oppression and slavery even in Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Rome. But the thing is, is every time that happened, it was a result of Israel turning their back on God. They said, we don't want to follow after you, God. And what does the Bible say? They turned to the pagan gods of the land that they were in, and God said, You can have the fruits of your worship. And it always led to oppression and slavery in church. What we have to learn from that is anytime we seek to worship a false God, anytime we seek to worship anything or anyone less than God, we'll get the fruits of our worship. And that fruits of false worship is death is destruction, is imprisonment because all other gods look to imprison. Only God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, came here to free us. Christ said in Luke chapter 4 that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy when he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. This is Jesus standing there and he's saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed. Jesus is not just speaking to the Jewish people under Roman rule here. He is speaking to the world under oppression of sin, under the oppression of death, under the oppression of whatever it may be that we find freedom and we find liberty in Christ. A liberty that can't be legislated away. A liberty that only he can provide because it's liberty in his kingdom. With all the efforts that Christ made to prove himself as the promised and prophesied king, the Jewish people that he came to restore still missed it and they didn't accept him at the time of his crucifixion you could probably number the number of followers on a couple of hands and where were they at the time he was crucified they were hiding behind behind locked doors scared for their lives this is the result of and what the result of turning from Christ turned into a continued spiral downward away from Jesus to blindness that they still have today. So they look for one who would overthrow and defeat Roman occupation. They also look for one who would establish peace and prosperity to Israel. Again, this is where we pull out our make make Israel great again hats. Isaiah chapter 11 verse number six says this, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together. And a child, a child will lead them. Speaking of Jesus. The cow and the bear will graze. The young ones will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. Any, any of you take your kids to the park and be like, you know, this is a good spot over here. I see a couple of water moccasins around. Well, let's, let's, just, let's just sit up camp and have our picnic over here, right? No, you don't do that. But in God's kingdom, it's that safe. A toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. Yeah. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And the nations will look to him for guidance. And his resting place will be glorious. We know by looking at this that God is speaking of the kingdom of heaven. That one day we'll get to where uh, there will be no lions looking for meat. Because they'll just be satisfied with, with, hey, they'll be vegetarians, I guess you could say. But we're looking at the peace that God brings. One place where no sin, no vestige of this broken, falling world still exists. It will be a return to Eden. But what Israel looked at and said, man, we want that kind of peace here on earth, right? It paints a prophetic picture that Christ would set up a peace where lions would lay down with lambs and peace would reign with no fear of danger, no death, no destruction. Don't have to lock my doors. Don't have to have surveillance cameras on my house. Don't have to have, you know, don't have to worry about people coming over and picking through my car in the middle of the night because I've forgotten I left my car door unlocked again. Doggone it. Zechariah chapter nine said, even prophesied of his humility, by declaring that the Messiah would enter lowly and riding on a donkey, which is what he did when he entered in Jerusalem the week before he was crucified. He was the peace for Israel and still is the peace for Israel and also for the entire world. The problem is that they had a complete misunderstanding of the Messiah's primary mission. The Messiah's primary mission for us, church, is not to give us a temporal peace in this life. The Messiah's primary mission is to give us a peace that knows no end. A peace that is forever secured, forever in eternity. While we may never see the lion lay down with the lamb in this life, we will see it. That will be the norm up in heaven. And the peace that we have of the promise that is just as sure in heaven is a peace that we can live by today. Do we know that there are dangers around us? Yes, but the peace that we have that God has us in the palm of his hand should carry us. That's what the king gives us. But this is what Israel was looking for. Israel was looking for someone who would give them political freedom, would give them prosperity, and would give them, that would take away all of their fears here on earth. And those those are some high callings of a king, aren't they? Those are some hard things for any king to do. The problem was that their view of King Jesus was too short. It was too little. It reminds me of what I heard one of my favorite preachers to listen to, uh, Francis Chan. He said this many years ago. He says, whatever your view of God is, it is not big enough. Whatever view of what God can and should do in your life, it's not big enough. It's just not. We fall short because we don't have that behind the veil understanding completely, right? So this morning, let's look at what Jesus the King truly offers us. Because the problem was they had a complete misunderstanding. They failed to comprehend the truth that Christ himself declared in John chapter 18. When he said that his kingdom is not of this world. And they failed to see the treasures of the newborn king. So here's what Jesus really offers. Jesus offers us life when we are lifeless. Jesus offers to restore life to the lifeless You see, what Israel wanted and what we often want in Jesus is someone who's just going to put us on top and make everything wonderful. But what we don't understand is it doesn't matter how on top you are if you're still dead. It really doesn't matter. See, history has given us some great kings. Some are revered and respected for their power in battle or their wisdom in political dealings or their popularity among the people. Some are seen as being benevolent and kind. Some are seen as majestic sometimes and even otherworldly like William the Conqueror and some others. Some kings are known for bringing great prosperity and security to their people. But no king in history ever has or ever will have the power or the ability to bring the dead to life. There have been some good kings that have done some good things throughout history. But no king has ever been able to make the dead live again. That is the power that is reserved only to King Jesus. To King Jesus and to King Jesus only. Several centuries ago, um, this young artist had spent years, I mean years of his life, struggling to sculpt the perfect sculpture. And what happened in those days is someone would be given just a slab of marble and a chisel and a hammer, and they would spend hours on end, years on end, trying to bring something out of that marble that would be beautiful. And so he spent years, wasted his youth, just continuing to chisel away. And when he thought he had it right, he tweaked it a little bit more. And finally, after years and years of work and toil, finally this this big block of marble yielded this statue of an angel that looked perfect to everybody. Many people said it was the most beautiful description of what they thought an angel could ever look like. Some even said it's more beautiful than what the Bible would even describe. But that wasn't enough for this young artist because the artist wanted to hear the understanding of the experts. And so he had invited experts from around the world and one of those expert artists was Michelangelo. And so as Michelangelo entered into the hall to see this great statue, the young artist stood behind a screen off in the distance because he wanted to hear what these experts actually said truthfully about this. And as he viewed it, he said nothing. And one of the artist's assistants went to finally ask Michelangelo, he said, Michelangelo, he said, what do you think of this sculpture? And he said, it's just missing something. It's just missing something. And he walks out. The artist heard what he said and he began for for days. He's like, I just can't get over the fact. I've got to find out what Michelangelo thought was missing. And so Michelangelo was invited over to the artist's house and he said, I heard you, I overheard you say that it was missing something. And Michelangelo said, Sir, you have misunderstood me. He said, The only thing that statue is missing is something you and I or anyone else can't offer. The only thing your statue is missing is life. It's perfect, but it's only missing life. And only the artist of all artists can breathe life into that. You see, we may think that there are some very skilled people around us. We may think that there are some people that can offer us hope and peace and all kinds of things. And we look to political parties and we look to money and we look to uh, people and we look to all kinds of things. I went to, went to, to to attend a beautiful wedding yesterday. And I saw two people stand up there and pledge themselves to one another. But if all their hope rests just in the person that stood across from them at the wedding altar, their hope is just misplaced. Because our only hope lies in Jesus. He's the only one who can bring life out of death. He brings beauty from ashes. This is the picture, and what Michelangelo says, it lacks only life. If only it had life, it would have been perfect as God himself could have ever made it. And this is the picture of the man who was without Christ. He has many things to commend to himself, to this world. His disposition may be good, his character may be beautiful, but if he lacks eternal life, he lacks everything. And I want to, I want to just, just propose to you, this king of all kings, this king that is unlike any other king's church, You may have a lot of kings that you want to follow and you may be hoping in a lot of things and a lot of belief systems and a lot of isms but there is only one king who brings the dead to life and trust me, you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you need this king to bring you to life or this is all you have. And while we know this, we're still so tempted to focus only on the shadow world that we live in. What we've seen as we looked in Revelation is this world that we live in is just a vague shadow of what's to come. But yet we live our entire life just focusing on the shadows all the time. And this shadow world is all there is. Folks, we need to keep our eyes higher and further out, focus further. And while we know this, We have to remember what the word says in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of this world, of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. He says, you were once dead, but you have been brought to life. Over that. In John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And the one who believes in me, me, even if he dies, he will live. In John chapter 10, he said, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come, Jesus said, that they may have life and that they may have it to the full and they may have it more abundantly. Christ the King offers not only to restore our life to us when we can't restore it ourselves, but he gives us a life that will never end, a life that we don't deserve because we squandered it away in our sin. So Christ offers to give us life. Christ also offers to overthrow and defeat Satan and sin. While Israel wanted someone to overthrow Rome, guess what would have happened if that's all the Messiah did? There would have been another world power sweep up at some point to overthrow Israel again, and they would have been waiting for a new Messiah to come and do that. But Jesus says, I am not coming to overthrow the world powers because they're just part of the shadow world. I have come to overthrow Satan and sin and give you life everlasting and bring you into a kingdom that is forever going to reign And forever victorious. We get so short-sighted in what we want from our king, don't we? While the Jews look for someone who would overthrow their physical oppressors, Christ promises to overthrow a much more formidable foe. And matter of fact, if you look and if you believe what this word says, which I think I'm looking at some people who do, this guy, this foe that Jesus defeats, is the one who's behind all the evil of the kings of the world in history. Satan was behind Hitler and the Holocaust. Satan was behind all the genocidal megalomaniacs that have ever lived. Satan is behind all of that. And Jesus says, I sit enthroned above him. That's the king that we have. He offers freedom from the oppression of sin and Satan. And in return, all of those things. When the kingdom of Satan only will give you death, the kingdom of God only gives you life. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same so that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. See, Jesus said, I'm gonna give the death sentence to death. Nobody else can do that but Jesus. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. When Jesus came and he laid in that manger, we often sing of the salvation that he brought. And that's true. But what really happened was he came to destroy Satan. <clears throat> At the close of an important speech to Congress, On January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt shared his vision for the kind of world that he wanted to see after the war in Europe was over. He spoke of four basic freedoms which should be enjoyed by all people. A freedom of speech, a freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And of course, Mr. Roosevelt couldn't provide all those things. You can't provide every single one of those things. And mankind will never be freed from these oppressive grips of sin and its nature and then and only then when Jesus has freed us from that will we be truly free John chapter 8 tells us if the son sets you free then you are really free indeed that's the only place we find our true freedom that's the only place we find our true hope and joy so while Jesus offers to bring the dead to life and while Jesus offers to bring us victory over sin and death he also offers to establish peace with God See, because what's remaining after Satan is conquered is that peace is established with God because we have to remember in our sin, we have placed ourselves at enmity with a holy and a righteous God. But I'm thankful that this God is not into the business of holding grudges. Some of us are really good grudge holders. I'm pretty good at it. I mean, I really am. Unfortunately about myself, what I know is I... I'm quick to forget the good and I'm really quick to remember the bad. But God doesn't do that and thankfully he doesn't do that to us. Because if he decided that he would put effort into remembering our sin, none of us would stand a chance. The prophet Micah writes in the Old Testament of a defeated ruler who rises to become the conquering king. It's the same prophecy that we saw back in our text this morning when we read when the, Jew, when the Magi came and said, who, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod starts scrambling like, what, there's a new king? A king of the Jews? Wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. He's like, no, 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 we're looking for a new one. He's just been born. And he's like, and Herod's like, nobody told me. I didn't have a son. He's like, and, and you know, the Magi are probably sitting there going, awkward, you know, because this guy's just found out he's about to be overthrown. Yeah, I know. Hilarious. And uh, it gets even funnier. But there's a lot of scary stuff between that. We won't talk about that just yet. All right. Um, but so Herod is, Herod is like, where's this king? Where is he doing? Because Herod is like wrapped up in, I've got to stop this. And so he calls in his scholars and his prophets. He's like, oh, yeah, there's this vague prophecy in the book of Micah. It's usually the one that we only look at when we're needing money and we want to tell people to tithe. But, but there's this other part in the book of Micah. And it says this, it says he will stand in a shepherd and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord and the majestic name of the Lord, his God. He will, they will live securely under him for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. And he says, out of this little town of Bethlehem will come this king. And I want you to notice what he says here in the book of Micah. He says, he will be their peace. This king that has been born, this king that the magi came to worship and to honor, it doesn't say that he will bring them peace or he will lead them to peace or he will negotiate their peace. It says he will be their peace. Christ doesn't just offer us peace or a path to peace. He is peace himself. He is called the prince of peace in scripture. And because of this, all who know the king have peace. Folks, there is a big difference in someone who stands up and gives you a campaign promise and says, if you vote for me or if you follow me, I'll show you where peace exists. Jesus stood up and Jesus hung on a cross and says, if you come to me, you will find peace that passes all understanding. A peace that can't be matched. A peace that will never end. A peace that rules and reigns in your heart in the middle of darkness. This is the king. This is what our king offers us. Our king is our peace. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, what happens? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. What this means is, is that one day, when this life, this shadow world is over with, and we stand before God unveiled, and we stand there with him, and we're reminded, Oh my gosh, I have rebelled against this, this holy majestic being. Guess what? Jesus who is our peace stands as our advocate and we are now at peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's our peace. Our spiritual war with God ends the moment we surrender to Jesus. We're all born in enmity with God, but we have a way for peace to be established and that way is through Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for him. And this wasn't the most eloquent message that I've ever delivered in my life, but man, catch the beauty of this. Jesus, very, I can tell you with absolute certainty, Jesus will not always be the king you want, but he will always be the king you need. Always. There was a young man, as we close out, there was a young man who went to a minister in great distress about his spiritual condition and he said to the minister, he said, sir, can you please tell me what I must do to find peace? He said, my life is an absolute wreck. It's in in shambles. I've tried everything I know to find some sort of peace and I just can't find it. And so now I'm turning to the church. The minister looked at him and said, sir, I hate to tell you this, but you're too late. The guy just sits back to he said, what? He said, I'm too late? How can, I, how can I be too late? You don't mean to say that I'm too late to be saved, that I've gone too far, right? I remember when I was a kid and I used to sit in church hearing the preacher always say, it's never too late to be saved as long as there's breath in the body, there is hope for the soul. And he says, but now you're telling me that I'm too late? And the man says, yes, you're too late because you came in here asking me, what do I need to do? To have peace. And he said sir. You can't do anything. It's too late. That was already taken care of. About 2,000 years ago. When Jesus who is the peace. Stretched his arms out on a cross. And those nails went through the hands and the feet. Of the son of God. And he who knew no sin became sin. So that we could be called his righteousness. He said you can't do a. to earn peace because it's already been given for you. And all he asks is for you to trust him and repent of your sins and give yourself to him. And that is peace. Then you'll know peace. You won't have earned peace but you will know peace because he invites you in. All peace is found in Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds utopian and it sounds you know I'm not saying that world peace will be established. If everybody just comes to know Jesus. Because we're all still sinners. We may be saved. The whole world could become saved by grace. But there's still going to be sinners saved by grace. His kingdom that knows no end is perfect. And when we live under the promise of knowing that I am a child of God. And I'm part of that kingdom. That perfection waits. And that's the peace that I have right now. As I wait for my coming king. We don't wait wondering. We wait knowing what is to come. And that's where our peace comes from. Israel looked and still looks for a king who will set them free physically. The world looks for a peace and freedom that they can find only in Christ. But many times will not accept. So the question is what about you? Will you accept Jesus not for the king you want. But will you accept Jesus for the king that you need? With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Again, I can tell you, I know that wasn't the most eloquent, wasn't the most well-crafted or designed message this morning, but the message still rings loud and true. I think what we're guilty of oftentimes, even as the church, is we're guilty of looking to Jesus and trying to make him be the king that we want, when what's so much more beautiful is him being the king that we need. The question I ask you this morning is, what do you need? Do you need eternal life? Do you need salvation? He's the king you come to. Trust him today as your savior. Do you need some peace? Do you need some just, some, some boldness in your life? Come to the king. Stop looking around at all the other stuff and look at the king victorious on the throne. Put your faith and trust in him as we pray this morning. God, I Thank you for listening today. At Grace Way, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylegs.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylegs at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.